Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Media with Peter Kafka, powered by Digital Media. Before we launch Recode Media as its own podcast, you may have heard Peter over at my podcast, Recode Decode. Here's one of the fantastic interviews he did for Decode. Let's listen. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by Digital Media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about Silicon Valley's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. This is our special weekly segment with host Peter Kafka, Recode's senior editor and producer of the Code Media Conference. Joining Peter each week are some of his favorite movers and shakers in the media world. This week, Peter talked to Chris Alchek, the CEO of Mike.com. Peter and Chris talked about making news for millennials, though I'm not sure they need different news than older people, but all right, and the importance of social media and video to the site's future. Here's Peter. Thanks, Kara. We're here with Chris Alchek. Chris, I have a burning question. You are a millennial. You know about all things millennial. Do millennials listen to podcasts? Now they do. Okay, good. So we can keep talking. Podcasts are hot again. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. You're the CEO and co-founder of Mike.com. Do you guys have podcasts? We do not have podcasts. But you got to get one soon, though. Potentially. Okay, so let's let's set the level here for the, the audience that's listening to us. Um, explain very briefly, maybe like two sentences, what Mike.com is, and then we can talk about how you got to where it is. Mike is building the most trusted news site for millennials. Uh, we reach 30 million people a month around the world and are just starting. So when you say the most trusted news site, is there a, is there a survey for that? We do many surveys. We do them every quarter, uh, and that's actually one of our key KPIs that we track really closely. I love it. KPIs, we're, we're there already. So let's back up. Let's talk about how you got to where you are. Um, you have a great origin story, which is that you were a, a Goldman Sachs trainee, right? Like, Goldman Sachs lowly analyst. You're a lowly analyst on your way to becoming a master of the university. You said, screw it. I want to make no money and get into the media business. Exactly. All right. It was a good origin story. So what were you thinking? Why did you start? It wasn't originally called Mike. It was called something else. Yeah. So it was originally called Policy Mike. Uh, and I started it with a friend of mine from high school, Jake Horowitz. Uh, we've been buddies since we were 14, uh, back in the jazz band at Horseman in the Bronx. Super cool. Um, he was editor in chief of our high school paper. Uh, after college, he went over to Lebanon to be a reporter. I went to Goldman after working in politics. And when he moved back to New York, we reconnected over this idea that there was a lot of energy uh, and different thinking ha- happening amongst our peers and amongst our generation, and that that wasn't being channeled. But let's be more concrete here. So again, you, you, you went to Wall Street, right? You got one of these jobs that everyone wants, or at least a certain people would kill for, a certain segment of the population would kill for. So and if you follow down this track, you, be, you really do make a lot of money, become very successful, the world opens up to you, and you decide, wait, me and my buddy Jake should go start a website instead. So how do you make that leap? Because it's not an easy leap for a lot of people to make. Yeah, no, I think it's actually pretty representative of our millennial mindset in a certain bizarre way. We're very purpose-driven. And, you know, I was learning a lot at Goldman. It's a place with a bunch of smart people. You know, the average IQ of 10,000 people there is probably the highest of any company in the world. But I wasn't necessarily fulfilled, and, and I had a real passion to do something meaningful. And and this was an idea that came up and came around. And so we actually initially started testing it while we both had our jobs. So the initial idea, first of all, it was was originally, it was called Policy Mike, right? So the idea was sort of a wonky-ish, sort of idea-driven way of of discussing the news. Am I summing that up correctly? Yeah, exactly. Um, It was called Policy Mike. And 
the idea was that there's a bunch of political energy, political ideas that aren't being channeled or discussed. Uh, that conversation was moving on to Facebook and Twitter at a huge volume. This was, you know, we started it right before the Arab Spring, actually. So this is uh, what year? 2010. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we launched a little website. Uh, we recruited contributors and we had contributors all over the world. And the thought was what? Because it was, I mean, there, you didn't have a news staff. You weren't out there sort of in the field reporting. So what were you doing on the site? No. So the thought was there's a level of discourse and dialogue missing from the general conversation and that our generation sees the world really differently. Uh, and that if we could channel that, it could become hopefully very powerful. And so we actually had, you know, the thing that catalyzed us leaving our jobs was Jake had just come back from the Middle East. He had recruited a contributor who was working in Tunisia. He was in Tunis. He was a teacher in Tunis, one of Jake's friends. I think it was early December. I was at Goldman still at my desk. Jake called me and said, hey, you know, David, our, our writer in Tunisia, sent me this crazy email, something's going down there. Can you post this stuff? And so went home, got on my computer, it was like 2.30 in the morning, and emails started coming in from David. It was sort of like middle of the morning in Tunisia. Um, we started posting, and that was the beginning of the It was Arab a dispatch from someone in Tunisia. First day of the Arab Spring. Here's what I was seeing. Uh, exactly. And so it was sort of like a crazy dispatch. It ended with the roommate of the guy who was writing getting shot in the leg sent us a picture, we posted it. We didn't know what we were doing in terms of distribution. We didn't know what we were doing in terms of sourcing or quality or any of those types of things. But after staying up for you know 24 hours and posting all the stories, uh, we sort of looked at each other. We're like, whoa, this is, this is it. But like, again, let's, I want to be clear about what it was when you started and so we can talk about what it is now. So was the idea that you were going to get people in Tunisia to send you their firsthand narratives and you'd publish those or you'd talk about the news or you'd aggregate the news? Seems like it's changed over time. Yeah, so I, I would say the it wasn't clear what the idea was in the beginning. Just uh, something about news and millennials and discourse. Yeah, I mean, so we had you know we had this one guy posting dispatches from Tunisia, which was incredible, uh, and then we had a bunch of people writing opinion from New York or California or Texas, you know, about what they thought about politics today, um, and you know there was everything in between in the beginning. The thing we did know was that. This was an audience that was underengaged by traditional brands, and there was something differently to be done. Exactly what it was, we were going to figure it out. So it seems like in, I was I was looking at some of the, the earlier news stories about you. It seemed like the initial idea was you were going to make this a discussion platform. Yeah, the idea was, according to you, look, there's not really a civil or interesting discussion happening on Facebook. Twitter is Twitter, so you, there's a very limited amount you can do. We're going to make this more like Quora or something, where there's going to be a discussion. We will encourage the community to contribute, and that's going to be sort of what we do: is we have smart discussions about the news. Yeah, so right? we we played around with a pretty fancy commenting system that we built in the beginning. Uh, we had a pretty large contributor pool that would get points and ratings up and down. And it was a little bit medium esque in the early days. And that was, you know, probably the first... Meaning contributed pieces and then a discussion about those pieces. Yeah, and, and a way of ranking contributors and trying to surface the best stories. Uh, that was sort of the first idea. So that's sort of what you left your job to do, is sort of that version of, of a news site or a discussion site. That was the first version we built after we left our jobs. What we left our jobs to do was, we didn't really know. <laughs> um, we didn't have a super solid business plan. But that was the first iteration of what we built. And again, I was looking at one of the clips. You said, well, we do, we, we're not trying to get to a million uniques. That's not our emphasis. We're trying to do this other business or this other model. So it seems like you've pivoted maybe once, maybe more than that. Uh, by your count, how many habits do you, sort of, do you think you've shifted what it is that you want to do? 
probably f- I, w- I wouldn't say pivoted, evolved, but probably nothing five, wrong with pivot. By the way, it's good. five or six times. Yeah, I mean a meaningful number of times. Right, and some people are, are I don't know they're, they're shy of the word pivot. I, they think it's got a negative connotation. I've, having been at a startup at least once, um, I think it's a good thing. It means that we tried something. The odds are it wasn't going to work, so we tried something else. Yeah, I mean that's been part of our early philosophy is like run an experiment. You know, talk is cheap. Doing it is a whole different story. And once you do it, you figure out if it works or not. I think that's been, you know, people ask Jake and I all the time, sort of how did you figure out what was going to work and what wasn't going to work? You know, the great part about where we are in digital media today is you get data back on what you do instantly. And so the opportunity to teach yourself and learn the industry is pretty unique. And so that's been, I think, the way we've been, that's been our approach now for for five years. And we've learned a lot doing it that way. So you quit your job in 2010, started iterating. Um, when, when did you first so start? So we quit our job in February 2011. 2011. You started iterating. When was the first sign that said, oh, we've got something here. There's a response here. We've, we've struck a chord, even though we're going to keep figuring out how to play that chord. Yeah, so we gave ourselves you know, about eight months in the beginning. We didn't have any investors. Jake and I both put money in. And we're like, okay, well... We'll probably spend this, you know, 150 grand sometime this year. So by the time this money's over, we better have raised money again. And so the goal was, okay, let's see what kind of audience and engagement we can build over the next eight months. Uh, that's how long we had. And the first milestone we hit was, you know, probably fall of 2011. We figured out how to start generating traffic. And at first, it was a combination of search and social, but pretty heavy on search. And we figured out how to grow the site, you know, to about 400,000 monthly uniques within, you know, three, four months. Was there a thing that was driving in particular? Do you remember sort of, oh, let's do more of this. They're responding to this. Let's make more of these. There were a hundred things. I mean, we would sit every day, you know, at the end of the day, look at Google Analytics together and say, okay, where are we at? Where, Where do we need to go? And I remember sort of like month two, we were looking at, okay, we had like 2,500 visits today. Like, okay, you know, back into a rough CPM, this is going to be a premium business, blah, 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 blah. Okay, we need to do, you know, somewhere between two and a half to four million visits a day if this is going to work. Okay, so how many times do we need, you know, by, by how many X do we need to grow this? All right, let's this get This is when work. you get out of the media business. You go, this is not doable. Yeah, no, 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 that's when we're like, okay, whatever we're doing is great. We got to figure out something much better. And that was our approach. Um, and so every day we learned something else. And the first milestone was, you know, we got to 400,000 monthly uniques pretty quickly and then went out to raise money. And, you know, the story was this is a big, smart, young generation that's been underserved by traditional media. You know, let's build the smart brand for them. And the response from investors was, you know, since when do millennials care about things that are smart? They only want snackable, clickable, you know, funny stuff. And sports and comedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we convinced a few investors that this was an okay idea. So I want to talk about that pitch a little more. First of all, I've got my own pitch here. Okay. Bear with me. If you like what you're hearing, and you should, you should join me at Code Media 2016, February 17th and 18th, where you can hear discussions just like this, but live and in person. It's where you'll find fascinating speakers from the intersecting worlds of media and technology, like Shane Smith, who runs Vice. Mike Hopkins, who runs Hulu, Eric Huggers, who runs Vivo, Jessica Lesson, who runs a cool startup called The Information, John Redding, who runs The Financial Times, many more. You can view the full speaker lineup and register for the event at recode.net slash events. You guys in the event business yet, Chris? I've got to worry about competing with you there. We have uh, a couple events. Oh, man. Um, but no, they're not in, in your space at all. So. 
So, so let me ask you, your pitch is we, we're doing smart news for millennials. As you know, there's a lot of skepticism about what you're doing and just a lot of sort of the millennial-focused news sites or sites in general. And all of you, and there are many of them, and, and uh, my colleagues at, at Vox.com, I think, can get lumped into that category sometimes. They all have a variant on their pitch. But if you sort of look at what they're doing, they all seem to be doing more or less the same thing, which is – sort of quick, easy to digest stories about whatever's in the news. And it seems to me that the main thing that distinguishes them from, say, the New York Times or lots of other traditional outlets is they're very good at figuring out how to distribute this stuff on social. And if I was to pull up five different stories about, I don't know, David Bowie today um, from your site and four other millennial-focused sites, they'd all look more or less the same. Do you think that's a fair observation? I think it. you're right that we're all good at distributing content over social because that's where our audience is. But I would say there are pretty meaningful differences in the way content is created and what kind of content is created. But it's a competitive space for sure. But I would say, you know, I wouldn't lump Mike and Vox in with 20 other digital media news companies. Why not? Because if the goal is reach an audience, reach an audience that's young, reach an audience that's going to consume this stuff on their phones and Facebook, uh, you know, if, if at first I'm an investor and advertiser, why do I care? about the nuance and the difference if I'm just what I want to do is reach an audience that's consuming this stuff on their phones and Twitter. Well, so not all of them reach the same audiences. It's actually hard to build trust amongst this generation. It's super skeptical, very upset with older generations, not in tune with what's happening in cable news, not in tune with what's happening in print news and looking for their own voice and own own way to do things. So that sort of by default has, you know, hurt some legacy publishers. Uh, and then if you look in the news space, there, you know, are a few people doing really interesting things, reinventing journalism and reinventing distribution. And I think we're one of them. Um, but I don't think it's, you know, a list of 20. Uh, I mean, do you think that the millennial audience is, is significantly different in the way they view the world than any other generation of young people that preceded them? Or do you think it's just that they're young people and this is how they consume media today? I think it's a combination of both, but I do think they are different than Gen X for sure. Uh, they might actually look a little bit more like boomers did in the 60s, but they don't look anything like Gen X. Uh, Why not? Because I'm, I'm officially a Gen X member. So what do you think the difference is between me at 26 and a 26-year-old today? I, th I think it actually has to do with how the world was when we were growing up. And so in our like early adult life, you know, for us, that was the nineties, um, as a generation, you know, now I'm, I'm generalizing, but very comfortable times overall. Uh, and we were encouraged to really look outward. Uh, and so there's, you know, a, a millennial perspective where people are looking for purpose, you know, for some employers, that means that their millennial employees are really annoying. But what it means is, is we're looking for more and have grown up in the world where now, you know, in our adult life, we're sort of constantly looking for meaning and purpose. And that's a different mindset than, than Gen X. And even if you look at Gen Z, which grew up in the 2000s, was at home during the f financial crisis, uh, is actually looking for stability. And so like Gen Z and Gen Y are very, very different, Gen Y being millennials. And there's a mindset and a culture that's actually is different. So call me a, a cynical Gen Xer, but but I think that over time it's going to, my hunch is that 
the traits that are supposed to be different about the millennial generation will sort of even out and they'll look a lot more like everybody else. And, and some of these things we're already seeing. Like the, for a while, there was stories about, oh, millennials don't want to buy things. They don't want to buy cars. They're not buying cars. And it turns out, no, they're buying cars. And, and they're moving into homes. It's just a different pace. I also remember a Fortune magazine cover explaining how you should manage Gen Xers because they're supposedly very difficult to manage. And there was like a someone with a nose ring and maybe like a parrot on their shoulder. Um, I bet we could, and Fortune magazine still publishes, we could still do that. So, and the reason I'm, I'm hammering on this is because it seems to me that there's just a lot of energies being spent around reaching millennials when what we're really talking about is figuring out new forms of distribution. So the Washington Post, which was struggling for a long time, got bought by Jeff Bezos a couple of years ago. Now their traffic's shooting way up. And it's not because the Washington Post has become a millennial-focused publisher, it's because they've gotten very smart and very focused about digital publishing and figuring out social and they're yeah. not publishing everything they put out, for instance, on Facebook. Who taught you, and, and I'm assuming the answer is you, but how did you figure out how to f- do social distribution? Because that's sort of the key to what you and many other people are doing. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, it was test and learn. And it was really Jake, my co-founder, who intuitively understands why some stories resonate in a way that you'd send them to your friends and why some stories don't. It's actually, you know, it's not new in a lot of ways. I mean, if you talk to old TV producers uh, or magazine authors or editors, they understand shareability just as well as anybody else. What's going to start a conversation? What's going to turn heads? But, you know, for some reason or other, some people get it more intuitively than others. Jake is the one who really figured it out. We built a big analytics team to confirm, you know, what his theories were that were right and what his theories were that were wrong, and then turn that into a big machine that produces a ton of content uh, along those lines. Um, and so I think I would say it's not that new, but applying it to digital takes a lot of focus. Is there someone Jake was using to sort of go, oh, I figured out Facebook. This is the secret. Let me, let me, let me pull you in here. No, there's not one secret. There's a bunch of strategies and they actually change every three months. I mean, that's one of the things I think people don't really realize is how quickly the landscape of distribution uh, evolves. Every three months, there's something new happening and whatever worked three months ago doesn't work today. And that doesn't mean you need to change your content and change the quality of what you're doing, but you definitely need to be thoughtful and strategic about how you're going to be distributing. What's something that works today that didn't work three months ago or something that didn't work three months ago that works today? I mean, the, the obvious one, and it's not three months ago, but the obvious one that works today that didn't work a year ago is, is video. You know, video distribution on Facebook was non-existent a year ago or a year and a half ago now. What worked six months ago, so call it June, that doesn't work today. Uh, the number of million-plus view stories through Facebook has essentially gone away. So there are very few viral outliers in tech stories uh, now versus eight months ago. And this is, this is something I wanted to ask you about because there's an ongoing discussion when we talk about modern-day digital distribution. We're talking about Facebook. Um, like it or not, many, many sites are now very dependent on Facebook in particular for distribution. Facebook changes the way Facebook operates periodically. Um, and there's a story going on right now that says, hey, a lot of the Facebook traffic to a lot of these big sites is either dropping or the rate of growth is slowing. It sounds like you guys are seeing that drop as well. Well, we've seen... We've actually seen a couple things. We've seen we've seen the number of viral tech story outliers go away. We've seen the number of video viral outliers increase. Um, so uh, the types of content that's reaching a ton of people is just shifting. What it's meant for our call it referral traffic is a much more stable referral traffic uh, that for us is actually still growing, uh, but growing in a different way than it was growing 
a year ago. And do you, do you say, look, we know this is going to change every six months or so, so we know we're going to have to keep modifying both what we make and how we make money from it? Or do you go, no, we're gonna, we think that this is going to settle at some point and there'll be one path? Um, we think it's going to continue to change for the foreseeable future. And that's why, you know, it matters to be across a bunch of different platforms. Um, and now actually in a bunch of different geographies as well. Um, and so on the platform side, you know, we're across obviously Facebook and search and Tumblr and Twitter and Snapchat and all these different places. Um, so, you know, a change, call it a plus minus change of 50% in one platform doesn't destroy you. I think that's how you have to think about building one of these businesses today. Um, and you should expect meaningful changes uh, in distribution, I think, for the next few years, because none of these platforms have settled. And when you talk about other platforms, do you want to reach people on those platforms and have them come back to Mike.com? Or are you happy if they consume all of the content on Facebook, on Snapchat? For us, it's both, actually. So we definitely, so we've built actually a metric for distributed content. Uh, we don't think all views are equal, and we've been playing around with a metric internally that really allows us to compare apples to apples across platforms. Uh, but one of the things I think where we're different than a lot of publishers is, is we actually believe we can build Mike as a brand into a destination. Um, and so this year, you know, while a lot of publishers are de-emphasizing product, at least their own product, uh, we're going to be launching uh, a set of products that push users to come back to us. You want to emphasize people consuming stuff on your site. Yeah. And it's that a, is a little different. And it, and it might not be our site. It might be a set of apps. It might be uh, an OTT destination. Uh, OTT means video. Meaning Apple TV or Roku. It's going to be a, it's not going to be sort of like, hey, type in Mike.com. But we believe there's, we've tested it with a bunch of users and we believe there's a real role for Mike to be a strong brand in people's lives that people come to. And we believe we have the product capabilities to make that happen. And so you know, I think a lot of publishers have, for a long time, technology companies said, hey, you guys focus on the content, we'll build the tech, it'll be great. And a lot of publishers said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're still going to build our own tech. Uh, and then in the last year, with all these new mobile products like Instant Articles and Moments and Snapchat Discover, I think some publishers have finally said, thrown in the towel and said, okay, you guys do the tech, we'll do the content from here on out. And, and we don't think that that's the right strategy. We think there's a pendulum and it swings back and forth. And right now we're in the sort of platform distributed side. I think two years from now, or maybe a year from now, we'll be back on the other side. And we believe that we can build products that people come to directly. So you started off saying, I'm not sure what we're going to do. We're going to make some sort of news site for millennials where we can talk about news. Now you're talking about building your own technology stack making big, expensive bets on video. This is heady stuff. Uh, how, how old are you? Uh, 28. You're 28, and you're managing how many folks? Uh, 125 now. So what, what are you using to sort of guide you as you sort of figure out how to tackle this stuff? These aren't things that are, you don't learn how to manage 100-plus people on your own. You don't learn how to do video on your own. Who do you go to for advice? Who's sort of guiding you through this stuff? Yeah, that's probably been the luckiest thing since I've started Mike is just I've been able to find advisors that know what they're doing and, and tell me when I'm wrong. So a couple of people that have been super influential, uh, Dave Finocchio, who started Bleach Report, you know, he's one of the least discussed and, and smartest content people, I think, of our time. I mean, Bleach Report is a massive force in, in online sports uh, content. John Miller, who's one of our board members, Jeremy Liu, who's also one of our board members and investors, 
and then a bunch of other advisors across the board who I call, you know, three or four times a week and get advice on. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that I've embraced is the first time you do something is always the hardest. Uh, and so there's a lot of first times for me right now, uh, which means just get as much advice as possible from people who've done it before. So again, back to the skepticism idea, there's a thought that there's a lot of new, if we don't call them millennial publishers and millennial news sites, we just call them new media publishers, new news sites out there. And that inevitably there's going to be some sort of shakeup slash consolidation. How do you see the next year or so playing out? Yeah, I think the next year is going to be a really fun one for those that are big enough to play ball. The, you know, the macro trend is still, you know, I think it was 2014 number, 69 billion in TV advertising in the U.S. alone and 4 billion in digital video advertising. You know, those dollars are still shifting, whether they shift at, you know, 5% a year, 10% a year, 20% a year, doesn't really matter. We're talking about billions of dollars moving into the ecosystem. And these are the billions of dollars that are actually brand advertising dollars. These are not the direct response dollars which moved five years ago to Google. You know, these are, these are and, the dollars. And Facebook. And Facebook. These are the dollars. Yeah, and Facebook app installs. These are the dollars that are actually at play for premium publishers. So that's happening. But that's happening only to people who can really handle volume because advertisers don't want to cut deals with 100 different sites. They, they want to cut deals with two or three big sites or big networks. Uh, and so the question is, do you meet the threshold of who advertisers are going to work with? I think this past year, we proved that we do. You're at the threshold now at 30 million people. Yeah, uh, because you know there's 40 million college-educated millennials in the U.S. 80 million millennials, half went to college, 40 million college-educated millennials in the U.S. We reach somewhere between one out of two and two out of three every month. And that's the group that has all of the income and all of the wealth in this generation. Uh, and so it's a pretty simple pitch to advertisers, especially advertisers who are selling expensive products, to say, we understand this demographic better than anybody else. We understand how they think. We understand how they talk. We understand what they want. And we have a simple and easy and clean way for you to work with us. And then the results speak for themselves. And if you want to come back, you can come back. So that's your pitch to advertisers. And when it comes to sort of whatever shakeout we're going to see among your peers, do you see yourself buying some of the smaller sites or, or merging with some of your peers? We've looked at some acquisitions and probably will look at more in the future. It sounds like you're looking at them right now. Yeah, there, there's always a conversation of build versus buy. You know, once you have growth and revenue engine going, it's actually a, an attractive proposition to look at other other players. The question is always merging content companies is really hard. So, are you better off buying things that you don't have currently? In whether that's technology, uh, video capabilities, or other pieces like that. Uh, and so for Mike, we've been thinking about it more in, in that space. This is like we're signaling out Morse code to various bankers to say, come on, talk to no, Chris, no, no, he's yeah. got some money, he wants to spend it. No, 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 no. we're focused, and, and, and I think by the end of the year, the goal is to reach all 40 million of those college-educated young people in the U.S. All right, so we'll, we'll follow up in a year or so and see how things went. Perfect. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I did conducting it, and it was fun, you should subscribe. Uh, you can catch up on all the previous episodes, be the first to listen to future ones, all on recode.net slash decode. And if you're listening to this, you probably already know that Recode Decode is twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And now there's yet another show. It's called Too Embarrassed to Ask, hosted by Kara Swisher and Lauren Good from The Verge. Every Friday, Kara and Lauren will answer your burning tech questions, review the latest gadgets, including all the weird stuff they saw at CES last week. You should check it out. 
The first episode is tomorrow, January 15th. You can subscribe to it now at iTunes.com slash T-E-T-A. That's T-E-T-A, short for Too Embarrassed to Ask. Kara Swisher's back on Monday. She'll be talking with PayPal co-founder Max Levchin. I'll be here on Thursday with another great guest from the media world. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.